This is W-O-W-D-L-P Tacoma Park. See me Feel me Touch me This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis and my husband, Peter. Good morning, everyone. We want to thank you for you that have contributed to our Spring 2022 Fund Drive. If you missed our Spring Fund Drive, go to our website at www.tacomaradio.org and hit the Donate button. It's never too late. You can make monthly donations or one-time donation. And maybe you would like to uh, give a birthday gift donation. And the Artist Experience radio program has been here since the beginning. Well, it's springtime, guys, and we're emerging from our COVID cocoons and venturing outside into the light and seeing things. Yes, this show is about seeing things and visually communicate what we see and how we can put it down on a surface. Today... I am talking about things that I've observed in teaching drawing and painting for 32 years. How many years have we been in this academic grind, Sheila? Can we put a number on it? No, I can't. No. I feel like okay. I was. I feel like I was teaching all through my life in different ways. A long time ago, I taught little kids and uh, taught them to make paper mache piggy banks with balloons. And dyeing dried noodles with food coloring. Have you ever done that? No. And, and gluing them on cardboard. It's really fun. And and I taught in summer camps and and uh, grade school. And then in middle school, uh, I used to take apart the TVs and use the resistors and the transistors, and they would make designs out of them. The students would. I love that. Well, we are on a very low budget. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And I taught students to paint from setting up still life and to go outdoors and draw and also to draw and paint themselves and each other. I don't mean on each other. I mean (laughs) paint portraits of each other. And then when I was teaching college students, I taught them principal design, which, Tom, you speak about a lot, negative space, how to flatten your vision so that everything becomes a flat shape. So then you better not get hit by a bus when you're seeing the shape around the bus. Mm -hmm. And you learn how to draw three-dimensional space so you're able to make things go back and forth, not only with perspective but with value. Uh, A rule, the closer things are to you, the larger they need to be. And the higher the value contrast, the further back in space, the smaller things need to be, and the closer to middle gray, the least value contrast. These principles appear in nature, but it helps to know what to look for and to train yourself to see them. And then, drawing from a live model, and that's a rigorous practice that I still do today. I taught color and color theory, how to make color advance and recede and produce the effects of light with paint and how to make colors light each other up or cancel each other out and or harmonize with each other or or 
fight with each other. And all these lessons that students learn to see the world in new ways really helps them to to have a larger view, a more interesting view of the world around them. My last teaching stint was with adults at the Corcoran School of Art. And often the students were professionals who had given up art for careers, sometimes truly talented people who decided to make an art, art a part of their retirement and to see what they might be capable of. So when I wonder what the purpose of taking art classes is, I think you can see just at the outset that knowing these things sharpens your vision, makes the ordinary world infinitely interesting. And of course, there's the satisfaction you, that you can make things, drawings, paintings, that you can make things happen that never existed before. And if you, d you didn't know it could arrive from you, it can into this world. Oh, thank you, Sheila. You're, it brings us back to many years ago when we met at the Corcoran School of Art and Design. True. We worked across the hall from each other. Well, so our listeners are getting basically 60 years of, <laughs> of, of, of observation and learning how to see. It's another free art lesson here at WOWD Tacoma Radio. As the semester ends, for me, I often ask my students what they learned in their drawing class, Drawing One Visual Language. I've been asking this question for 32 years. Most often students say, well, professor, I learned how to see. I learned to look more slowly and carefully at the things around me. And now I see things in a different way. And I would get answers like, well, when I'm washing the dishes at the kitchen sink, I see the highlights on the glasses and the plates in the dish train and, and the specific shines and the patterns on the dishware. Or they could say something like, when I have a bowl of fruit in front of me in the dining room, I see their 3D forms more clearly, the shadows one on the other fruit, and I see the textures of the fruit. And then somebody actually said this to me, you know, very recently. Well, when I'm on the bus or the metro, I look at people's faces more intently and study the relationships of one feature to the other and compare the people around me and how I see them and how I would draw them if I was going to draw a portrait. So these are examples of how people are learning how to see more carefully. In other words, the students have increased their visual vocabulary but learning how to see, like everything else, takes practice, and it's a discipline, as Sheila has already said. Sheila, this is our 130th show here at WOW Tacoma Radio, and you have stressed so often about learning how to see and look carefully. Well, this is interesting. What's the difference between learning how to look and learning how to see? In the dictionary, the main definition is to glance, to gaze, to stare, to gape, to peer, focus, peep. Seeing is to discern, to ah. perceive. Oh, I like that. Isn't that nice? Yeah, that's wonderful. Everyone with vision is pretty good at looking. Looking is what you need to get up and out of the front door and get to work. <laughs> you need to gather information to live. Seeing can be a slower process. It's like the difference between hearing and listening. You can hear without listening, and you can look without really seeing. So learning to draw and paint 
is really learning to see, just like you're saying, Tom, and not just with your eyes, but with all your senses. If you go outside and draw a tree, how do you start? That tree is big. You need a bigger paper. Or you need to scale down what you're going to put on that paper. How is the tree leaning? Is there wind? Is the tree bending to the light? And what shape is the canopy of the tree? How do you make all those branches a shape against the sky? Is it hot and oppressive so that the leaves flop down? Feel it. Do the trunks stay the same in circumference or do they taper to the top? Do the branches stay the same or split into thinner branches? It's complicated, isn't it? And it is the simple act of drawing the tree that's humbling, but it it alerts you to how much there is to be doing it. And soon you're learning a lot. And you're tempering your frustration with the simple satisfaction of never having really seen a tree before. The words of Mario Rossi. The great interests of man are air and light, the joy of having a body, the voluptuousness of looking. So the voluptuousness of looking, this is what you're talking about. Also, also air and light, also having a body. You put your body into your painting and drawing. What you're saying echoes John Ruskin, who was the number one art critic in Victorian England. He pushed this idea that we could all, every one of us, we could all learn to draw, and we should learn in order to enlarge the quality of our perception. He described a practice of drawing a few hours a week Whenever you travel or sometime make the time to record scenes for future remembrance, but also actually to see fully and bodily. So um, I pulled a, a few quotes from Ruskin from his short book, Elements of Drawing. He says, the excellence of an artist depends wholly on refinement of perception. And... He says, once we see keenly enough, there is very little difficulty in drawing what we see. But even supposing that this difficulty be still great, I believe that the sight is more important than the drawing. Terrific. And one more. um, It is surely also more important for non-professional students to know how to appreciate the art of others than to gain much power in art themselves. So he has this system for teaching, you know, beginners to draw. Uh, That he means for everybody. He criticizes the modes of sketching ordinarily taught to students. He says these modes, the techniques that were taught, are inconsistent with the with powerful perception. And so this reminds me, I know what he's... Sheila, you all also sometimes scoff at certain modes of teaching drawing, popular local teachers. Um, <laughs> what about that? Well, yeah, what about that, Sheila? <laughs> all right, well, you know, Peter, thanks so much for mentioning the classic book, Elements of Drawing by John Ruskin. I have several copies. It's an oldie but goodie book on on looking and learning how to put it into a practice in drawing and painting. It's also an inexpensive book. It's a Dover paperback, and it's easy to find. I actually think it's a must, Uh you know, for for a drawing student. So uh, 
It's uh, you might want to check it out. Elements of Drawing by John Ruskin. When I started teaching at Duke, I used another method called the Natural Way to Draw by Camon Nicolaides. It's possibly the best book ever written on learning to draw. It's simple. You use a model, and most of these exercises, some are really dependent on using the model, and some you can use a tree, which has a lot of different, a lot of the same properties. There's an exercise that will get you started, the first exercise. And now you draw for three hours, and then you come back to another exercises. These exercises are like scales on the piano. It's always a way to get back into drawing, and you know, if you haven't drawn for a while, and they become a part of whatever you draw. These are not, uh, they're not anything to do with style. They're just pure exercises. It's hard for some people to understand what they are, so you have to do them. It's not just reading the book. Uh, the first basic lesson is contour drawing, and it, the contour drawing is training you to see as to touch, and I'll describe it to you. You put the pencil on the paper and concentrate looking at the model until you feel that the pencil is actually touching the model. You never look at the page. You travel along the lines of the body, inside and outside, and when you come to a stopping place, you pick up the pencil and put it on another part of the body. It requires complete concentration, and it makes no difference whether it's something difficult like hands or something sim simple like the line of the arm because you're just traveling along. The second exercise is gesture drawing. And in order to do gesture drawing, you have the model take very fast, very energetic poses, and you feel that gesture of the model with your own body. You have to stand up so you can move, and you identify with the movement of the model, and you take the energy as it's in yourself. The tree, if you use a tree, the wind, the branches, as they grow and they lean in nature, the same with the model. In a class with a good model, you can identify with the body as your own, and you come alive, and it's something like a dance, only you're recording it with your charcoal. So in a sense, all these things I've mentioned are tricks because drawing is an illusion. But these things are necessary to create the illusion and cause you to see more completely. There are other tricks that are not so good, things that might give you a certain effect, but they get in the way of close looking. For example, there are books on drawing the figure that give you the proportions of the head and the body. This should be a guideline only, a suggestion of what to look for. Every, every body is proportioned differently. But instead of these hard and fast rules that keep you from seeing the infinitely strange variations that are there, people tend to look at this and then just do the proportions. But they're always different, and it's the same for a face or an apple or a glass of wine or a lake. These rules and techniques and tricks get in the way of actually seeing. Now, advanced artists, no matter how dedicated they are to the truth, develop tricks. 
Of course you develop tricks. Certain expressive ways of drawing the eyes or the organza skirt of a Degas dancer. Looking at Cezanne's drawing, it's true that his delicate shading in the faces comes often from drawing Greek sculptures at the Louvre, and they're lovely and sensitive. But that is different from constructing the mouth the same way every time so that all mouths look the same. Thank you for that philosophical art lesson because it's absolutely right on. Another free art lesson here at the Artist Experience <laughs> Radio Program. Well, if you, if you just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Program at WOWDLP Tacoma Radio. I'm Tom Snackers with Peter Blake and Sheila Blake. And today we're talking about learning to see and learning to communicate visual experience, uh, experience through drawing and painting. The basic tools in observational drawing uh, you, you need to see to learn to see better. It's a perception, it's a discipline, and a practice, and it should be fun. Well, I need to remind our listeners that the physics of seeing involves an important natural phenomenon, and that is light. Well, of course, without light, we cannot see or perceive anything in our environment with light. Now, that's seeing. We could perceive things in our environment through touch, but that's not seeing. This show is not about the physiology of sight nor the physics of light, but I would like to say something that might seem crazy. For centuries, scientists believed that light came out from our eyes in a brain-eye relationship and we manufactured the properties of sight from within. Well, of course, that's wrong. Actually, light enters the eye and goes to the back of the eye, the retina, and there are phys physiology of with cones and rods and the brain connected to optic nerves which which begins a physical chemical physiological and even psychological kind of journey to get us to see it's a phenomenon of sorts on how we see but this is a ridiculous simple way of saying it but it is light that makes us see peter do you want to jump in here you know a bit about light, right? And yeah. the sense of seeing. Thanks, thanks. But let me say first, wow. I mean, I love that story. The, the ancient theory of sight that you just described. You said it seems crazy to us now that the power of vision somehow shoots out from our eyes to illuminate the object. But before people got the idea that the eyeball might be a small camera obscura, which it is, what other theory was there? I mean, it's clearly your eyes that somehow transform the object into an experience, but how? The modern scientific explanation is crazy, complex in its own way, and it's still full of mysteries. But, you know, both of these viewpoints are theoretical viewpoints. We, you know, as an artist or a thinker, writer, you don't really need them. Um, there's a third way, however, of looking at vision, which is very interesting, the phenomenological viewpoint, where you experience your experience. So the first viewpoint is the natural, naive viewpoint. There's a tree right there. The tree presents itself. You see it because it's there. The phenomenological viewpoint is 
realize that the tree I'm looking at is actually an experience. I can go up and touch it, of course, it's there, but what I'm looking at is actually an experience that is, is created by your body. You can pay attention to it. You can pay attention to your experience. It's not a movie in your head. It's out there. It's like virtual reality. I mean, really, think virtual reality, the new technology, what is it doing? It's simply sending artificially to your eyes the same information that the real world sends naturally. In sum, you can look at your experience and draw it. Peter, I really like that. It's kind of far out, but I really could. That's palatable, though. I could handle that. Well, uh, as an experience, yes, uh, we've been. That's part of our name of our radio program. Few students that actually take art classes will become artists. Some will continue their drawing and painting, and some few will will embrace it as artists as an exploration of their innermost expression and present it to the world, who's their audience. Things have changed so much in the last 60 years that being an artist and being an art student used to be considered a practice and a calling. A student entered this knowing that the chances of making it in his or her profession were slim. But teaching, if you got a degree, was a very good option. You can continue your artistic practice and fit in teaching which is a lot to ask. <laughs> but, it, but studios and places to live were pretty cheap, and if you were lucky, people brought your work. And there was also a romance and a thrill and a camaraderie in this pursuit of being an artist. I still have artist friends from those years, and we now we can send our images over the computer. Isn't this amazing? There's not many left in my life but for those of us who are here, we consider it a miracle that we've, consi- well, we've continued to be artists our whole lives. I'm pretty good at listening, but always in any conversation, I'm looking at something that's visually fascinating, something behind them, stuff on the table. And part of me is mixing the colors of the light and the shadow on the wall or the clothing. <laughs> this can be tiresome. Sometimes I just want to turn it off. But it's a habit, and sometimes I'll put something in a painting that I thought I made up. And then later, out of the corner of my eye, I'll recognize that pile of dishes or a pattern that's found its way into my painting. So this sort of just really exchangeable. Well, you know, I, th- I think what you just said is something I used to say a, lo- a-, a long time, that, that uh, visual artists in somewhere like the quintessential voyeurs they're constantly looking at their world and studying it, you know, in, in a really specific ways. Yeah. Well, on the second day of class for so many years and for so many semesters, I would ask the students to do this, a kind of exercise. And I suggest that you might even want to try this at home as well for our listeners. I stress that the things that we should communicate in life should be the things that come from our knowledge and knowledge will inform us about how we communicate, and it always does. And then I proceed to tell them what they know best, and usually what they know best is themselves. I ask the student to take an hour 
and draw a big self-portrait of themselves since they know themselves most. But they have to do it from memory. Only memory. That's right. I said it. Memory. Not drawing from a photo. Not drawing from a selfie on the phone. Only from memory. Yes, there's lots of grumbling, a little cursing under the breath with that exercise. But the results are very revealing. Well, why do I ask the students to do this? Because we truly never study ourselves and the relationships of the elements or subjects or the objects on our faces, our features, our hair. We never really study them. We look at them, you know, casually. We never look carefully enough. And I call that reading the subject. And that's what we also call visual literacy. Do we know the language of seeing, observing, with purpose and reason? That's why I do that exercise. And, and what are the results of the exercise? Well, we, we get some people that do a fantastical representing, um, a representation of themselves. It's not really themselves. It's like how they fantasize about what they could or should or ah. <laughs> look like. And then you get some people that, you know, it's a little more realistic, but they, they never, they scratch their heads when they start because they never re they realize they really never looked at themselves that carefully. Ah. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing you have to deal with when you open your pad of paper in a class is how to fill the rectangle. I once modeled for a drawing class and the teacher would go around tearing half of the paper off the drawing and saying, there, you're not using that anyway. It was pretty harsh. And I wasn't ever sure that they got the point. Well, if I did that, <laughs> Sheila, I would be rem removed from my teaching job in seconds. Well, that was, ripping I kind of think, I think that this teacher was really, I mean, he was just showing showing off, but it didn't really get the point. And the point is that the minute you put a line down on a page, you're determining something that could happen in the final composition. Remember when we talked a few weeks ago about the Picasso drawings yeah. and how he would draw, and then he would change it and change it again and rip it out and change but he was always completely aware of filling this space absolutely it's really was. great and so i like the idea of drawing a line an inch from the edges so that the edge of the drawing is defined and it's already a part of the compos composition and then because you're so forcefully reminded where the top, the bottom, and the sides are, you can start to place things within that space. For beginners, when they're drawing from the model, they usually don't leave enough room for the lower legs and feet. And so they think, oh, well, we'll just make them smaller. And so <laughs> That's so true. I know. Absolutely true. So they true. have little tiny legs and feet. And so what can you do? Well, you can just make the legs smaller. <laughs> That's about what everybody does, which looks really weird. Or you can decide to take the legs and feet off the bottom and make that part of the con composition. Or you can start by placing the top of the head, the shoulders, the stomach, knees, and feet within the page, which is probably going to be a lot smaller in scale than you had originally thought. 
Or if your natural scale is bigger, bigger, get a larger piece of paper. And don't change the size of your page every time you draw because it's so much better to maintain your sense of scale. Absolutely right. Thank, Thank you, Sheila. So you each had your first skill. The first skill that John Ruskin works on in his book, Elements of Drawing, is shading. Um, he says, nearly all expression of form in drawing depends on your power of graduating delicately. So that's a quote. One exercise he gives is to copy the change in shade in the sky between two vertical objects. It is shading, Ruskin tells us, that creates roundness, which is the most important communication in a, in a drawing. In his instruction, he sets the student at once to draw a white ball. All that his study of the ball is to teach the pupil is the way in which shade gives the appearance of projection. He says, um, it may be objected. Many people object that the, a circle is the hardest thing to draw. And he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the ball is actually round. Uh, as you work on it, you'll get better and better. But the point is to, to get the shading right so that it, round or not, it's, it's a solid object. Um, interestingly, uh, Raskin feels that learning perspective is pointless. Well, yeah. wow. Well, we have a few philosophies on this. Well, firstly, Sheila, I don't know about you, but I there's some professors that start the semester right off the bat with shading, as Ruskin suggests. But I, I find that the students are more familiar with line mm -hmm. as, a, as a form of communication. So I start off with line knowing that Ruskin's actually has quite a lot of value in what he says. But I, I only start out with line because of the com comfortability factor. Mm. That's very right, yeah. Well, as far as perspective goes, well, I'm not sure about pointless, but uh, here's how I handle the introduction of perspective. Perspective requires uh, looking, math, geometry, and even some physics. Well, here's an example. If you need to draw a box or a simple cube, you need to know perspective. Knowing that perspective is an instantaneous turnoff to most basic uh -huh. drawing students, uh -huh. I ask the students just to study and look at the box carefully without giving them the rules of perspective. Yeah. And, and so they're looking at boxes for a few weeks, in other words. And I go and I show them, you know, I talk about how each edge is parallel to each other mm -hmm. in, in a cube. And then I introduce the com concepts of perspective only after they've learned to see better and more accurately on their own without the rules. And I all, then I remind them to go back and see their first drawn boxes and see how off they might be because mm. they weren't maybe looking at them correctly. So to me, I think it's better, as Ruskin says, to learn how to see first in the practice and the discipline, and then you feed them the math and the rules of linear perspective, because that's tough. Yeah, well, that's pretty much in line with what I was saying about learning the proportions of a body. You can learn those proportions, but you're not really learning to look, to see. And in this case, learning perspective, yeah, it's quite heady to sort of make something really like look like it's 
you know, real in space. But you're not, in doing that, you're learning a device and you're not really learning to see. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back and give you some more tips on how to see better and how to communicate what you see better in your visual communication. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with my co-host Tom Sinakis and with my husband Peter Blake. And today we're talking about learning to see and the phenomenon of visual communication. Well, Sheila and Peter uh, have been talking about how to put things together to make something beautiful, which also means to make something good and to make something right. I believe in an, an ability to put something together to be visually pleasing on a page, as Sheila was talking about, with your sense of composition is is not only about seeing the relationships, but uh, in a space or a place, but it's, I think we don't trust our intuition enough, and I think it's definitely quasi-intuitive. And I'm not talking about emotional relationships, like looking at someone across the bar. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the visual relationships and looking at something well, intimately, and close. And we do it all the time, right? I mean, we, 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 we look in our closet, we throw on some clothes, right? And we don't necessarily have to make a fashion statement, but we are a visual unit when we go out into the world. And think about when you get a bouquet of flowers or you pick flowers from your own garden and you organize them in a vase. I mean, you make them beautiful. That's something that you intuitively know how to do. You don't have to take a class on how to put flowers in a vase to make it beautiful. I think it's intuitive. I like to say how we compose a page is like how we compose a plate when we're eating. You know, like when you go to those all-you-can-eat all breakfast bars, do you, you remember that experience? And the server asks you, or do you want to have the breakfast bar? And you all say yes at the table, and then you go and grab a plate, and you, you look at the plate, make sure like there's no crud on it, and then you start <laughs> piling the food on your plate, right? And, and so you're making a conscious decision of what is going on that plate as you move along the breakfast bar, right? You know, there, there are certain things you don't want to put near other things. And, you, you know, you're placing them carefully. You're not just flopping and slopping that stuff on the plate. And that's what we call composing a plate. Like, you know, I hated when the maple syrup on my pancakes dripped towards the scrambled eggs. That kind of like grossed me out. So you're making a constant thought out decisions along the way. And that takes patience. It takes pensiveness. And it also takes energy. So we're really never taught how to do that. And we just do it. So it's intuitive. And I think stu uh, humans have an innate sense of composition. This would be a great time to have a poem that illustrates your point about composition. But... I couldn't resist. Two beautiful short poems by A.R. Ammons, uh, which 
present us a visual composition that would be very hard to paint, uh, not by students anyway. Maybe some Japanese master could do it. So here they are. The first one is called Release. After a long, muggy, hanging day, the raindrops started so sparse, the bumblebee flew between them home. And the second one, Cousins. Hornets nesting under the weatherboarding drop by the window. I think them catkins the winds picked up from the birch nearby. Then notice they drop funneling centrally from expanse. Mind alters agreeably to convergence's home. Well, Peter, thank you. This poem is perfect for something that I've been wanting to talk about because this whole discussion is about drawing from life, which we've made this about this program. What the student is learning is grounded in the objective world, and that's important, but it's only the foundation. And from this, the artist can acquire the skills to go beyond. And this poem is beyond solidity. It's about the elusive and the illusory, like a Mark Rothko painting or a side Twombly. It's a discussion about mind. Yeah, that picture, the composition that's painted in the poem is the abstract funnel in space that is traced over time by individual wasps dropping down home from abroad. Well, those are really beautiful poems, both of them, uh, uh, Release and, and Cousins. I've got to say, you know, this is wonderful that you just brought this up because what it also takes us to is the, the, when, when we're talking about illusions, uh, we're also talking about taking something, you know, in our mind's eye, as they used to say, and putting it on a paper. Well, but one thing I want to stress and and, and, and and address here is the language of seeing, which in many ways is the language of art. In many subjects we study, it doesn't matter what discipline, we really need to know the language of what we're studying. I don't care if it's, you know, physics, medicine, law, finance. We need to know the language that accompanies these disciplines and practices. And the basic elements of art and design, which are sometimes called the graphic elements, are part of the language of learning how to see, such as line, shape, form, value, space, color, texture, and pattern. If you want to draw an apple in pencil, let's say, you need to you need to see how it evolves visually. You might start with a line to create a shape, and with the shape you add value to create the form, and then you put it in a space. But you need to kind of look a little more harder if you start with space first. So in other words, there is a process and an evolution in looking at something. So this evolution of starting from line to shape to value to form to space, so on and so forth, and I, you can throw in color there too, and pattern and texture much later on. These are something that things that I was not taught. But when I nowadays I show my students these videos, and um, 
all the time. They start off literally with the figure of the, the artist, and they always say, close one eye. I, I never remember being taught that. I never was either. So, mm. so this is something that I wanted to bring up. So sometimes closing one eye will help beginners look at their subjects from one visual perspective. With both eyes open, one gets kind of like a stereoscopic view, but the brain adjusts, of course, to be one view. The two eyes open are a mechanism to see depth perception better. And this is important, of course, in our daily lives. We're always walking around with both our eyes open, hopefully. With, with one eye open, though, you can focus on more specific things in your visual field, but it does have some limitations. But one of the things that Leonardo da Vinci says is when you're looking at a subject, and these videos that I referred to a few minutes ago never say this, you need to step back from your subject every once in a while from about five feet. So you're, because a lot of times, I don't know about you, Sheila, but I see students getting closer and closer and closer and closer to their drawing, where they're basically their nose is near is is near the subject, next to the subject, or even near their paper, mm -hmm. and that is a very very bad habit. And um, so I would suggest again another good way to learn how to see is to step back from your drawing and look at your subject from a, dis a distance, and then look at your drawing, look at your subject, look at your drawing, look at your subject, and make a visual comparison. Sheila, um, and what do you think about Leonardo's use of the mirror in checking relationships of your drawing? He used to take a mirror to his drawings and look at it and make evaluations, and sometimes he would turn his drawing upside down. Yeah. What do you think about that stuff? You know, I couldn't draw without a mirror. Wow. I just couldn't do it. I I have a right-left distortion. I don't know if other... Do you have that? Do you, I might. I, I have a lot of distortion. <laughs> I have a lot of distortion. But I don't know about that I don't one. know if people have it or it's just me. But when something looks vertical to me, it's usually leaning from left to right. And it's, it's natural in the way that I draw. But I don't ever see it until I look in the mirror. And then it's obvious. So if I just if I see it in time, then I can redraw my verticals and horizontals to correct that distortion. Because otherwise, everything is going to be distorted. So it becomes clear when the space is or isn't what I want. And then I have to look in the mirror and see, okay, what's happening here? And sometimes... What I do occasionally is take a picture with my phone of my painting, and then I can reverse it in the photo app. So this is little tricks, tricks that I have of uh, seeing the, the drawing in a more accurate way. It's an absolutely invaluable way. trick. Thank yeah. you so much for that. Well, one, another example I would, I would show you is when I ask my students to do a self-portrait of themselves, you know, looking in a mirror. And one of the things that I, I, I uh, see is that, uh, for instance, um, they, they, they're looking so closely at individual parts. Yeah. They don't see their whole face, head, and neck. They look individual. So what ends up having is all of a sudden you have these students draw these absolutely huge, 
which I it's, call Hollywood fake lashes. <laughs> they, it's like they see an individual lash on their portrait. It's like, you know, Betty Boop on Rogaine. You know, it's like you just don't, you just don't see that when you're looking at a whole face. And uh, so you don't really see individual lashes and you can't certainly count them. So we have to be very careful in, in keeping that distance. And what I tell the students is when you were, your eyelashes is really a dark edge on the top of the eye. Now, some people do have large eyelashes, but you can't really start zeroing in on them when you look at the whole face because uh, you get sucked into the details forgetting the how the eye sees a perceptive thing as a whole. Well, that that also is true for hands. Oh, very absolutely. much true. You you know you try you try to get the whole shape of the hand, and the, the sh- and then the fingers come last. It's not otherwise you've got a whole bunch of f- fingers, maybe too many fingers. But but it's really important to get the shape of the hand and where the light hits the hand. Oh, that that's yeah. so important. And, and John Singer Sargent drawings and paintings of hands, he hardly even pay, uh, even draws a nail. Uh-huh. He gives the illusion of the finger, yeah. but no details with cuticles and hangnails. Right, right. It's just a, it's just a yeah. yeah. Oh, well, one of the things, are, now that you mention it, a couple of semesters ago, a, a student did this drawing of his arm and hand, and he zeroed in on all the hand, all the hair on his knuckles. Oh, no. And uh, all his hand. And I, I, asked the stu- I asked the class, which student in the class was a wolf man? <laughs> you did. Because, yes, I did. It was just so unnatural because <laughs> they were zeroing in on every hair. But it is really difficult just to stand up for being a beginning art student. I remember when they would, the teacher would come around and say, no, draw the whole head. The eyes come later. And I would say, no, I just got to finish this eye. And then I'll get to the rest of it. It's some kind of really weird intuition that it doesn't work. But I remember when I was teaching and I would try to get the students to back up, like stand up. And oftentimes students, you know, especially if it was the end of the day, they would get really tired and they wouldn't sit and be at the easel and they didn't want to have to stand up and go back. And so I became like a coach and I'd clap my hands and I'd say, okay, stand up, step back, look at your work. And they, it was very hard for them to get to see that how important this was. Or I'd say, take your work off the easel and prop it up on the floor, step way back. It was. I couldn't work without doing this. Oh, it's it's mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 so true. A lot of the students they just kind of plop down, and their 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 basically backsides are on the on the seat, right. and they never get up. It's like half their body is not addressing the physical nature of the drawing. Well, we've talked about this in a recent show about how sometimes the photograph and technology could hinder the way we look at things. And uh, an example would be, you, know, you have a really beautiful still life that you're about to start drawing in front of you, and you say, I'm going to take a picture of it. And it's an innovative idea because the light might change. There's nothing wrong with taking a picture of it. And the subject might wither or rot or both. 
So it's a smart thing to do. But then I've been noticing with my students that slowly but surely, you know, they start off looking carefully at the still life. But then slowly but surely they start looking at their phone uh-huh. with, the, with the still life in it. And uh, this is happening more and more. And the phone becomes a visual crutch. They stop looking at the real deal in front of them. And the real life subject is really the important way and the good way to practice. Okay, looking at the phone is not a good way to practice, especially when you're a beginner. And of course, the real deal, the, the still life in front of you is bigger you could see the whole thing better. The phone, you know, the camera picture on the phone is tiny. And so you have to be very astute, as we talked about in our last shows, of interpreting a photograph uh, that's in front of you and painting and drawing from it. So with my years of observation uh, and depending on some of these things as as te- technological helpers like the cameras on your phone, sometimes I call it, getting lazy at the looking. In other words, the students get a little lazy and they start depending on their photo. The photo is convenient, but you have to be very careful about it, using it when you're drawing, when the subject is right there in front of you. Mm-hmm. Well, before the Industrial Revolution, we lived in a darker world, or at least an artificially unlit world. And art that was made for cathedrals and churches, which most art was, were lit with candles. So to see them, we had to let our eyes adjust to a duller light. It's like anything, if you come in from the sunshine and you even walk into your own house, it's your eyes have to adjust. And so as your your eyes are adjusting, the sculptures would come off, come forth out of the darkness and it would take time. And the same with paintings. It would take time for your eyes to adjust to the interior light. But with <clears throat> artificial lighting, these works of art could be lit. They can be lit now. And we wouldn't have to take the time to see them because you can glance at them and not really, really enter into the artwork. And so... Even though it's quicker, something's lost. The the slow looking, and something's gained. It's a lot easier. And now the lighting in churches and museums is an art in itself. But of course, we want the experience, but not like looking at meat in a supermarket, where everything is lit up for you, so mm. you can see everything. Right. Well, this episode of Artist Experience on. W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park, has described a practice of looking long, fully, and with complete absorption, not worrying about the passage of time, not worrying for the moment about producing more of your career. And one of our poets of this long looking is Mary Oliver. And I wish I could read dozens of her wonderful poems of close observations, but here is one. Goldenrod. On roadsides... In fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold. In little towers, soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow heads and perfect flowerlets. 
and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it, except for honey, and how it heartens the heart with its blank blaze. I don't suppose anything loves it, except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citron and butter-colored, and was happy, and why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway, so far, that is better than these light-filled bodies? All day, on their airy backbones, they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness, in the pure peace of giving one's gold away. Well, uh, thank you, Peter. Yeah, so, I mean, Mary Oliver is about as famous a poet can get, uh, which is not much, but she's about as famous as you can get. And some people look down their noses at her um, because they suspect a trick and they fear being caught out admiring um, a greeting card, but they are mistaken. Um, she's working an old tradition, the nature poem, but she brings to it incredible poetic chops. The reason why she belongs in this episode of Artist Experience is that through close observation, she puts herself in the plants, uh, which is what Sheila said happens very early in your learning, how to draw, putting yourself into the subject of the paintings, the plasticity of your awareness in, in that experience, and that's a good result. So even if you can't yet, at your early stage of development, bring all the tools of the artist into a glittering pandemonium. I mean, isn't that a phrase there? The sensitivity and the control of her medium uh, words, the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. Well, Mary Oliver is just a great American poet. Uh, she died a few years ago, and she left us with so much beauty in words and sounds, and she conjures up so well the close looking and, and, the, and, and the studying of nature around her. Uh, Mary Oliver is just an amazing uh, American poet. I uh, can't say enough about her. We hope you've enjoyed the show. What about that next show, Sheila? I'm putting you on the spot again. You're putting me on the spot. I do know that at the National Gallery, there's a sh um, show of... African contemporary art and oh. African American art. We might decide to go see it, or oh, we might, or we could also uh, take this show that we've just done or develop into painting because this really has been about drawing. So, right, it has. you know, if we're going to give another free lesson, that would be one. Okay, we got plenty of those. Okay, experience art and the visual and everything you do. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. See me, feel me, touch me, 
listening to you I get the music gazing at you I get the heat following you I climb the mountain I get excitement at your feet Right behind you I see the millions on you I see the glory story Listening to you I get the music gazing at you I get the heat following you I climb the mountain I get excitement at your feet Right behind you See the millions on you I see the glory from you I get opinions from you I get the story Listening to you I get the music Gazing at you, I get the heat following you. I climb the mountain, I get excitement at your feet. Right behind.